0: Okay, guys, I've cooked up something amazing with my friend Natalie Y. Beavers, founder of Angels of Epilepsy, and it's all yours for free now. Go to my website at uninvisiblepod.com and download your free ebook called Hacking Healthcare, a resource guide Natalie and I have compiled using not only our experiences in the healthcare system, but also with the assistance of other patient leaders who have added their two cents. From a message of empowerment to notes on navigating health insurance and your doctor's visit, this is an invaluable guide intended to make healthcare more approachable and to give you the tools you need to succeed. This resource has been incredibly eye opening and important to us, and we hope that with it, you will see real results and improve your experience in the system. Once more, that's a free download of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Go check it out, guys. Thank you. A note to all you lovely listeners tuning into this episode, please note that there is brief mention of the car accident that caused Tiffany's disability. In addition, this episode was recorded toward the tail end of 2020, so if any of the references herein may sound a little bit dated, that's why. Sometimes these episodes spend a little time in the can before they make their way to your lovely ears. But Tiffany has so much wisdom and experience to impart to all of us and i hope you'll enjoy tuning in thanks so much for listening all right guys thank you so much for joining us i am here today with tiffany Yu. tiffany is a fellow spoonie and the founder of diversability she's going to talk to us all about both of these aspects of her life so tiffany thank you so much for joining us thanks for having me oh it's such a pleasure as we were just saying before i hit record we uh have been meaning to do this for a long time. I, I have been following your work for such a, a long time now, and I really hope everyone who's tuning in is following you and diversity. So I'm excited to hear more about your
1: personal story as well. Of course. I mean, we started as Instagram friends and now we're Zoom friends. I mean, what's next? Possibilities. The possibilities, <laughs> the possibilities <laughs> in 2020 are just endless. <laughs> Well, let's start from the beginning
0: of your story then, um, and we'll get into diversability as we move on with that. Um, Can you tell us when and how you first realized that you were a Spoonie, just like us, and what steps you've taken to control your health since then?
1: Mm. So my origin story, I call these our disability origin stories, started when I was nine years old. So my mom had to go for a business trip over Thanksgiving weekend, and my dad and a couple of my siblings thought that we would see her off at the airport. And on the way home, my dad ended up having a seizure and lost control of the car. So it was a single vehicle car accident. I sustained a few injuries, including a couple broken bones in my leg that would leave me in a wheelchair for about four months. And then a permanent injury known as a brachial plexus injury, um, which is a little bit easier to explain to people as like, in terms of just saying that my arm is paralyzed. And so I still have like limited mobility, limited sensation in the arm. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just a, a form of a spinal cord injury. But mm. in addition to all of that, I was also most recently diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD related to the accident. And one of the things that I've been learning along this journey is that I think on average, there's about like a 14-year treatment gap in terms of, yeah. you know, the onset of the trauma for me and then realizing like, oh, this is actually a thing. Like it is not normal to be crying in, in the checkout, at the checkout counter when I'm checking in for a flight hmm. or to be waiting at the bus stop and then bursting out crying. Hmm. And then once I realize that, once I had kind of did a little bit more digging and a little bit more critical questioning of the medical professionals and my, my professional support system, I realized there's actually a treatment plan available for me to help manage and find more more healthy healthier coping strategies. Mm.
0: So, I mean, it's interesting that you had, as you say, this first injury at nine years old that led to a long-term disability. And then- I mean, it's been a 14 year plus gap between that and your PTSD diagnosis. So how have you managed your health both physically and emotionally um, since that time, since the onset of these symptoms and diagnoses?
1: Mm. So I recently gave a presentation on toxic positivity, Mm. which is a term that not a lot of people have heard about, but it's become a little bit more popular popularized during this pandemic. But toxic positivity is this idea that it's positive vibes and positive vibes only, like yeah. zero tolerance for any negativity or hard emotions. And the reason why I bring that up is the other thing I want to mention is how heavily influenced I am by the fact that I grew up as the daughter of Asian immigrants. Yeah. And in doing the research for this presentation on toxic, toxic positivity, I realized how much of a correlation there is between within, Asian, within an Asian cultural context, there's an idiom that says the, the nail that sticks out is the first to get hammered down. So mm-hmm. the, the, the lesson behind that is don't stick out, like don't draw attention to yourself. And within the context of my family, it was really all around do everything you can to avoid any type of shame to your family. Sure. So, how toxic positivity manifested for me was similar to internalized ableism. I call this internalized toxic positivity, which is I went around for 15 years after the accident telling everyone that I was fine mm-hmm. and saying, it is what it is, which means I don't want to talk about this situation anymore. It makes me, and then I was judging, I was feeling bad about it, feeling bad. Right. Judging myself, and so how I dealt with the diagnosis—not great. <laughs> yeah. Um, if if I could go back, and so that's why so much of what I I so much of me leading by example and like practicing what I preach now is rooted in looking at what it looks like to lead with vulnerability, mm-hmm. because now that I have read *Daring Greatly* by Brené Brown and like. Yeah. She's like my spirit animal. She's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) If if the listeners aren't familiar, just Google her name. She has Mm -hmm. the most watched TED Talks. She's got a Netflix special. She's got tons of books. She's She's got got a a podcast. podcast. (laughs) (laughs) She just launched a second one. Um, Yeah but I just became so curious because what she talks about is the power of emotional sharing Mm -hmm. and what happens. And, and for me, the first time I ever shared the story publicly about the car accident, it was 12 years after the car accident. And more recently during pandemic times i have been catching up, you know, we've been doing virtual coffee dates with, with whomever, including us right now. (laughs) And and I caught up with someone I went to high school with Mm. And she has been doing some really great work. She, uh, she launched a platform called Healing Honestly, and this is her own personal journey of healing through childhood sexual abuse. Um, definitely check it out. But we caught up and she said, Tiffany, I knew about your arm, but I never knew about the car accident. And what I thought was so interesting about her mirroring that back to me was how much I was hiding of my story. Like, I never told anyone, and I've known her, I mean, I was in high school 15 years ago, you know, 15 right. plus years ago, to not even tell those people. And I wore a sling all the time during that time. That's why people knew about the arm. But the fact that no one knew about the car accident, other than the people I was in elementary school with, yeah. is just like, what else What else was I holding back hmm. um, in this attempt to try and not cause any shame to my family and just try to be positive and good vibes only? So yeah. since I want to say, actually, since what I often talk about is the fact that the creation of diversibility in 2009, starting in 2009, up until now, 11 years, has really mirrored my own healing journey. Mm-hmm. So starting diversibility gave me the permission to share my story about the car accident, which I needed to get that out. I needed to get that story of the car accident out to validate the fact that wow, I've been suppressing emotions for 12 years. The suppression of emotions is actually what leads to, to PTSD symptoms becoming becoming worse, right? And then for it to manifest and to start, you know, trickling out was because okay, the car accident's out now. What else? What else needs to come out of my body? Grief, trauma, you know, all of that kind of coming out. So uh, in the way that I have been managing since really, and again, this is really rooted in the creation of diversability, which I think we'll talk about more, but it was, I really needed to root myself in community because I just felt so isolated in my experience and so excluded from this, so excluded in my non-disabled world that I had no mirrors. I talk a lot about mirrors, right? Because the thing is like, when we share our stories, oftentimes all we're looking for is something that resonates with something we're going through. So you might not resonate with like being in a traumatic car accident or losing a parent in that same accident or like childhood trauma, or or maybe there are parts of those that resonate with you of hiding of people, you know, I get people making comments to me like, "Oh, but like I don't consider you as disabled." And I'm just like, "Well, I just told you that I was, and so you're invalidating yeah. an experience that I'm carrying around." But I but I yeah. understand that you're trying to be well-meaning, but mm-hmm. let me talk to you about what that means when when you when you reflect that back to me. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So, I mean, something you touched on here, it sounds like you lost your dad in this accident too.
1: Oh yeah. Sorry. I, I didn't even mention that. Yeah. So my dad, well, and- you weren't, you weren't supposed to, <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's also my job to eat that out. So, yeah, so, so- well, wow, that's, that also is going to compound that trauma and that grief.
1: So, so he passed away and talk about internalized toxic positivity. I would talk about him as though he was away on an extended trip. And part of that was reinforced by my mother. Um, and if if I if I think about my mom, she lost her husband. She had three of her four kids in the car. One became physically disabled. Three probably have ongoing mental health things, whether or not we acknowledge them or not. And the whole family yeah. unit probably has some mental. I mean, one of the things I do, and and I'm very open with all of this, probably much to my mother's chagrin, but. Mm. There hasn't been collective healing as a family unit. And if I think about my own healing process, that's why I think oftentimes when I talk about on social media, like this is a lifelong healing process. I can't like oftentimes when I talk to people and, and I can look at this in the context, I talk about this in the context of disability, trauma, and grief. And some people, and we, and I talk about this in terms of like a purse versus a blanket, or a cape. You can turn the blanket into a cape. So the cape to me is my disability, my trauma, my grief is something that I carry around with me all the time. It really influ- influences the lens through which I move about the world. Versus, I think that there are times where I wish that my disability, trauma, slash grief, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is a purse that I can leave at the door or I can leave at the restaurant as I go to the bathroom. But like, I want to, I just want to name those nuances because I think a lot of times, We aspire to want to have these things as the purse, as the thing that we can leave behind, but we can't, which is why I talk about these things in terms of my identity. Like, I carry grief, the fact that I lost my father, the fact that I, you know, lost the ability to use one of my arms, the fact that I lost my childhood. Like, I wear those and I carry those around with me as I move about the world. And that has influenced the lens, you know. There's a really great TED talk by, someone named Nadine Burke Harris, and she talks about the impact of childhood trauma on your brain development. So I can actually pinpoint, well, I, I don't know if I can actually like show you my brain, but I, <laughs> but, I, but I understand what she's saying. And she's dedicated her life to this research to say, if you have, she, she calls it an ACE score, adverse childhood experiences. If you have some kind of childhood trauma, something has happened in your brain development that impacts how you move about the world as an adult. And I can do endless amounts of therapy and healing, but I just know- that at nine years old, something shifted. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting
0: because we often talk to people on this show who are living with disabilities or chronic illnesses that have onset because of trauma. Rarely do we talk about onset because of something as physically traumatic as a car accident, right? So this is also something where like, it's not a genetic issue. This is an issue that, was foist upon you by the universe, by circumstance, right? Um, And I'm really glad that you're talking about the mental health aspect of this, particularly from uh, a cultural lens as well, because this is something that when you go through these experiences, you go to the hospital, the first thing that's treated is the physical injury. And rarely is there follow-up from a mental health perspective as well. And you're noting how important it is to have that follow-up really, not only for you individually, but for your entire tribe of people, for your unit, your family unit, whoever that may be.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think one of the things, we actually just came out with a, a little guide related to Mental Illness Awareness Week that happened in October And it was about the intersection between disability and mental health. So diagnosed mental health conditions or mental illnesses, whatever word you want to use, those are disabilities. Depression is the number one cause of disability. But there is, for those of us who have non-mental health disabilities, there is a mental health, a very heavy mental health aspect of that, whether it's covering or passing. So, for example, like you and I are chatting over a Zoom call our list, your listeners are going to consume this through audio, or if they're unable to, they'll check out the transcript, but I can pass as a non-disabled person. Right. And so I spent so much of my adolescence trying to pass. And that also has causes psychological stress mentally and physically. Right. And so that's why I've become so fascinated by just care. And a lot of what I talk about is what does it look like to be disabled and well, and what does it look to, what's it look like to be disabled and thrive? Because I grew up believing that those were mutually exclusive. Yeah.
0: But health, I think many of us do.
1: That's true. And, and, and health is so holistic. And, mm-hmm. you know, I feel, I know, I know that your work potentially um, centers on more of the chronic illness space. And the thing is, is like the thing around, around like chronic illness or mental illnesses is that depending on the day, depending on the day is different with my physical disability. Oftentimes I'll get people tell it like who will say get well soon. And I think that's funny. The funny thing about that is that I think if you're sick, if you are sick, right. If you have a chronic illness, there could like get well soon means like, I hope the next day you feel better and you might. And then the day after that you might not, but today my arm is paralyzed and tomorrow my arm is paralyzed. And Mm. 20 years ago, my arm was paralyzed. And probably, you know, unless there's like some, magical thing that happens. Like my arm is paralyzed. And so even, even the messages, you know, I I talk, I've been talking a lot these days around like ableist microaggressions, even Mm. just saying like, get well soon. There's an expectation that puts like a weight on me, right. And a pressure on me that like, Oh, this person thinks that my arm, that having a paralyzed arm means that tomorrow it will get better. (laughs) Yeah. Which is why, which is why, so before I used to always talk about my brachial plexus injury, right. And, and because it's called an injury, even a spinal cord injury, right. Even that wording in itself means like, Oh, when you have an injury, that means like, it'll get better. Correct. And Mm. so that's why I've kind of moved over to the wording of like, my arm is paralyzed because Mm. I think that that wording is more clear than a brachial plexus injury, which a lot of people are unfamiliar with.
0: Absolutely. I'm curious about the visual signifiers here too. Obviously the PTSD diagnosis, that is fully an invisible diagnosis. Um, but you mentioned that you wore a sling growing up, you know, when mm-hmm. you were in middle school and high school and stuff. And I think we're also, typically we see someone in a, a sling, have their having their arm in a sling, and we think, oh, again, this word injury, you know, that's something that is that will heal over time, it's temporary. So you had this visual signifier, you had the attachments, the perceptions and presumptions that people have attached to this visual signifier. Do you still use
1: a sling from time to time now? What does that sort of invisible, visible line look like for you? Yeah, great question. So I am no longer living the sling life. I will acknowledge that other people who do have brachial plexus injury. So the thing That I so I feel very grateful because I don't have any pain, Mm -hmm. and a lot of people who have brachial plexus injuries have shooting nerve pain Mm -hmm. all the way down their arm. A lot of times, one of the remedies around that is amputation.
0: Wow, and
1: um and the decision to amputate is very personal and mm-hmm. talk about ableist microaggressions. I get a lot of comments from people, particularly on TikTok, who say, well, why don't you just cut off your arm? It's useless. And <sighs> what I think is, what I think is interesting is that is something that I did look into, but what I realized is that most people who do have brachial plexus injuries, they amputate because the pain is so bad mm. and they wear us. They wear a sling because the pain, the shoulder pain is so bad. So, Fortunately, I have no pain and I feel extremely grateful for that. All of that said, one of the, I don't know if side effects is the right word or symptom. I feel like I'm like a little bit at the loss of words today, but. Something oh no, that
0: you're happens. doing
1: great. <laughs> okay, excellent. So one of the things that happens with a brachial plexus injury is you get something called like a claw hand. So mm. that means that the knuckles are very straight uh, and in the resting state, the knuckles are straight. So your it's like your fingers are straight, but your fingers are relaxed except at the knuckles. Right. And so what has ended up happening is I've had like hyper, my knuckles have hyperextended. So if you think about like... Knuckles bending backward. Correct. Knuckles bending backward. You got it. Yeah. <laughs> so I do, I do wear, I wear a wrist splint hmm. to try and slow the knuckles from going all the way back. Right, right, Um, and the splint. You know, I get a lot of questions, so I didn't wear a splint for about 20 years. Hmm. Um, it's been 23 years since the car accident. If you can, if you want to do all the calculations on my age, you can. I'm 32, (laughs) we can just dispel all the rumors. I have (laughs) Asian, Asian youthful glow, though. So, (laughs) I'm 32, the accident happened when I was nine, Hmm. and in 2018, I decided that maybe I would look into getting a splint. I decided I was going to restart physical therapy. My muscles have atrophied pretty badly, but I have hope that if you just continue to exercise, similar to like like similar to like normal exercise, like if you never exercise, your muscles would probably atrophy. Probably many of us in a in a pandemic state, who can't be as active as we usually are, um, have experienced a little bit of atrophy. So. I thought I was going to just restart all of these things. So I started going to physical therapy again. They were My doctor referred me over to occupational therapy who recommended a splint to, um, to slow the knuckles going backward. So now I wear a visual marker. And what I think is interesting is that even without my visual marker, most people are not going around staring at people's hands, right? You're staring at people's faces. And so even though I have a physical disability, I can actually pass as a non-disabled person. And I actually had someone on my podcast named Jerron Herman, and he is a dancer with cerebral palsy. Yes, I follow him as well. He's amazing. He's amazing. So yeah. he actually talked about how we feel like there's a little bit of an erasure of us within the disability community because he and I both don't use assistive aids. So I can choose. So for me, interestingly enough, in a COVID era, I'm more nervous about sanitizing my hands and washing my hands. And so I don't wear my splint just out of convenience that I like want to make sure that I have taken all the precautionary measures to not contract COVID. But pre-COVID, I would wear the splint. And the splint was helpful because if I, and I used to travel a lot, if I was on a flight, I could point to my splint and someone could help me put my luggage in the overhead compartment versus before if I asked someone to help me put my luggage in the overhead compartment, I would kind of get like strange stares, right? You know, it's kind of like this hashtag, but you don't look sick.
0: Yeah. Which is in and of itself a problem. That's ableist behavior right there.
1: Correct. Correct. I mean, and the one thing I'm realizing or one of the many things I'm, I'm starting to see is just how pervasive ableism is. And I look at even some of my own talks or some of my older quotes and I'm ableist in some of the things that I've said as well, right? And this is my own internalized ableism coming out into into vocal speech.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. This is the one. This is one version of
0: yeah, an iteration of of that kind of behavior.
1: Yeah. So so yeah. So I have a splint, and I don't know. Since you've been following me for a while, I have in, I have a couple of uh, and even in my even in my podcast with Invisa Youth with Dominique, we talked a little bit about my splint. So I had artwork drawn on my splint. And I had I had the artist, his name is Forrest Stearns. I had Forrest to draw a nine-year-old girl hugging an elephant on my splint. And I had him write the word proud on one of the Velcro straps. And one of the things that happened, so I got my splint back in 2019, in July of 2019. So I've had the, the, the artwork splint for about a year. And the thing about it is now that the splint has artwork on it, it is an invitation to ask for the outside world. And it is an invitation for me as someone who spent so long trying to hide my arm to show you my hand. So I just noticed just even within the past year, like a tremendous amount of growth in terms of ownership over the physical manifestation of my disability. And what's interesting is I started DiverseAbility over 10 years ago. I feel like I have ownership over my physical disability narrative, only now am I starting to kind of explore, here's what it looks like to live with PTSD. Here's what it looks like to be on a grief journey and on a healing journey. But yeah, within the past year, I think the physical taking ownership over how my disability has manifested physically on my body through just this piece of artwork, this piece of artwork that was the splint, but was also my arm, you know? And I spent so long just rejecting it saying like, no, I don't want to do physical therapy. No. I like, I just like don't want to acknowledge, like, I feel like this part of my body is ugly. And then I'm just like, well, actually I only have one body how can I just take ownership over the whole thing and acknowledge that like this hand is a story that I want to tell.
0: It's interesting because I see a correlation between that and a lot of people I know who have gotten tattoos in areas where they've had either a surgery or some kind of, disabling incident, you know, so that there, there are people who are using either something like a splint that they're covering in art, you know, the way people also will draw on casts, mm. um, you know, and then there are people who are taking it as far as putting that on their skin too. And these are all versions of making, creating a story, changing the narrative around what created this, this concern, this issue.
1: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I will say the next iteration, and I haven't decided when slash if, but I do want to get the word proud tattooed on my injured arm. See, there we go. So straight it's into It's happening. Yeah. It is. I love that. <laughs>
0: but that's, that's lovely because that's something also that like when you take the splint off, when you're not wearing it, you still have something there that, again, reinforces a, a, a different narrative around that story that yeah. loss that grief actually becomes something that you are gaining something from
1: yeah but that's why i think i'm like really excited about what's happening in like this inclusive fashion movement yeah. because the things that we wear and and i remember when i first got my splint i cried
0: hmm.
1: and i cried because i went and i i got on the bus to go home and this guy saw my splint and he was like oh like what happened to your hand And I was like, oh, I got into a car accident and I looked out the window, right? Which looking out the window to me is I don't want to engage in this conversation. He's like, oh, but your hand, it just like Mm. looks so interesting. It's smaller than the other hand. And but it reminded me, right, of the fact that I can pass because Mm. if I weren't wearing the splint, he wouldn't ask me the questions. And I cried because now I had, now I was deciding to go back into my sling life, right? The visible marker. Mm. And was I ready to emerge out into the world by consistently showing up wearing a splint. And the one thing I want to the, the one thing I want to mention that I've been talking a lot about is by me wearing a splint, not only is it an in, an invitation for conversation, but I do notice that it I, it reminds me of the fact that the disabled body makes people uncomfortable, especially yeah. if you have a physical manifestation of it. And so that can be that can lead to an inquiry like what happened on the bus whether I want it to be or not, but I want to acknowledge that my sheer existence causes people discomfort. And in a period of racial injustice, I want to acknowledge that I want to use these periods of discomfort as an invitation to have a conversation and as an invitation for you to do a little bit of self-reflection as to why you feel uncomfortable. Hmm. And I, I, what I think is so interesting about this digital environment that we're in now is that we can pass as non-disabled people. So how much are we asserting that we have a disability when we show up to zoom? Oftentimes people will be like, Oh, Tiffany, can you type your answers into the chat?
0: Hmm.
1: At which point I'm like, well, I can type my answers into the chat, but I want you to be aware that I only type with one hand. (laughs) Yeah. And so you're asking me to like, do something that you know, for a non-disabled person or even for a disabled person who can use both hands, that's something they don't even think about. But for you to ask me to do that, that requires an an extra level of access that I have learned to navigate in a non-disabled environment. Mm -hmm. So, So I go back and forth on this because someone asked me the question around job interviews and whether or not the fact that we as disabled people can now pass in virtual job interviews, if that will help. And what I responded was that, if that helps us get the job, because right now, like our unemployment numbers are just Mm. astronomically heartbreaking. Yeah. Like if that gets us the job, fine. But I want to be able for that person after they have passed to go into their job work environment and have their access needs met and be able to wear and wave their disabled flag proudly.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I'm curious as well. Um, one of the things you just mentioned is this idea that you're using your slang as an opportunity to educate others really, and to give them give really to offer them an opportunity to examine their, their own beliefs about their internalized ableism and even ableism connected to racial stereotypes, gender stereotypes, et cetera. And I'm wondering if there's, like a tagline you use if there is a, a sort of a piece of language that is you're in for that conversation, because that's a, a conversation that a lot of people in the disability community don't want to have, you know, they're mm-hmm. like, that's other people's responsibility, not mine, mm-hmm. which is a perfectly And that's fair, okay. Yes. Yeah. Perfectly fair point of view. But is there sort of a safe tagline that you might be able to recommend to people who are listening to the show that invites that conversation from a heart centered place? mm the tough one, I know.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, so I have, TikTok has been my source of entertainment and joy and play during this pandemic. And you've built a viral following. I mean, you are queen of TikTok. TikTok. What I will say about TikTok and what is so fascinating to me about the platform is that Instagram, which is how you and I got connected, is very Mm -hmm. highly, highly curated Mm. And so if I post, I remember I'll, I'll I'll just share an example. So uh so I'm I'm East Asian, I'm the daughter of a, a Taiwanese immigrant and a refugee from the Vietnam war and at the beginning of COVID there was a lot of anti-Asian racism. So I posted a video both on Instagram and on TikTok that said, "I feel very nervous going outside because I don't know who is going to harass me and sometimes I wonder or sometimes I feel more afraid at who was going to say what to me or do what to me when I go about the street than contracting COVID because I know I'm like careful and wearing a mask and washing my hands and all this stuff. Posted that video both on Instagram and on TikTok. On Instagram got tons and tons of overflowing messages of support like, Tiffany, I'm here to support you. If you need me to go pick up groceries for you, let me know. I have a car. On TikTok, it was like, this is all your fault. This, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party needs to pay um serves you right uh, stop eating bats trump 2020 and wow what what that made me think though was this is what the world really thinks mm. and i am in an echo chamber of pro disability wanting to be anti anti or wanting to be active anti ableist allies on my Instagram and on other social channels. So if I really wanna broaden and better understand what people really think, then I need to go to TikTok. And yeah. I will say what has been interesting to me and the reason why I have been talking about microaggressions a lot is that I have, I, I fortunately, I was never overtly bullied as a kid. Mm. And I have seen bullying on TikTok in the context of microaggressions over and over and over and over again. And there was a period of time, probably in like August, September timeframe, where I just got really tired of answering all of people's microaggressions. Fair enough. Um, but to your point, uh, so yeah. there, 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 are two, there are two things I'll say here. And one is, I acknowledge that I have chosen to be a leader in the disability community. Hmm. And I have done a ton of internal work and am still doing tons of internal work so that I can show up with a cup full for my community. Yeah. That's huge. I feel very comfortable talking about my disability and I don't want to force anyone. It is, it is not anyone's business for them to ask you about things about your body. So I want to acknowledge that like, even just gracing that conversation in the first place like I will acknowledge there's like ableism embedded within that but if I can use as a conversation that's my hook
0: So so one of the one of the responses to why are you wearing that slang or why are you using that wheelchair or whatever it may be can be that's none of your business
1: yeah or it can be like I don't feel comfortable I don't feel comfortable answering that question right now yeah And there needs to be kind of like a level of respect around that. So the Mm. second thing I want to say is your original question was, what is your invitation to have that conversation? So a lot of the comments and the reason why I brought up TikTok is that I wanted to use TikTok as an example. So I get a lot of questions or comments on TikTok that are framed like, um, Ooh, I feel really uncomfortable looking at your hand because, because I have this claw hand Mm. and, um, to which I'll respond. Why do you feel uncomfortable? Mm. Uh, right, because it's Just the, like the most basic question. Yeah, Why? yeah, yeah. Um, mm. And then they'll and then they'll say their thing. So my the, my ultimate my ultimate message is so that so then they'll tell me their reasoning or or maybe they'll catch themselves they'll catch that they're in this ableist loop and then correct themselves and then I'll say you know my hope in terms of asking you this question or asking these questions is that maybe you can do some reflection around why you feel uncomfortable around bodies that look different the other th- the other question I'll get is like oh um, can't you just move your hand to to, to look normal mm. and then I'll say oh but my hand is normal mm. and then and then the and then they'll say, but you know, it's like, it's like done in a soft way, right? Because I could immediately go to, you're, you're being ableist right now. This is a microaggression. Like, this is offensive. You sh- it's, this is harmful. Like mm. by saying this, it's harmful. Um, the other, you know, the other thing is around like people making comments around, p- people will say things like, oh, you should just cut off your hand. Mm. It's useless. At which point I'll respond, um, or Sorry. First, sometimes people will say, oh, you should just cut off your hand. And then I'll say, oh, why do you think that? And then, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the next thing will be like, oh, because it's useless. And then I'm like, oh, but I actually use my hand for a lot of things. And then they're like, oh, I didn't know that. Right. I mean, I have made a couple of TikTok videos that are saying, oh, by making prescriptive comments about my body, that's actually ableist and can be harmful. Um, but that's but- the
0: next step of, in the education. So if people are still with you for that conversation, that's where that might really hit home.
1: Correct. So, mm. so I have done, and this is what I like about TikTok too, is that, um, it's funny cause it's like all these alliterations with the word T it's like Tiffany's, Tiffany's TikTok. And <laughs> anyway. yeah. And I, and also there's sick which I love. Oh, oh, is there? Yeah. Oh, interesting. We yeah. do have a, we do have a hashtag disability TikTok. Mm. Um, but I will check out sick but yeah. I, but the thing is, is that no one in real life says stuff to me like that. Right. Because we're, and, and this is why we've kind of gotten to the place where we are now. And I, and I parallel this to what's happening in terms of racial injustice is that we've gotten so uncomfortable wanting to be politically correct, being nervous about if it's okay to ask a question, being nervous about not being sure what the right words are, that, the, that we're just not having conversations around my blanket, you know, a part of my identity that I carry around with me that you're not acknowledging because you're uncomfortable and you're not confronting your own discomfort. Mm. And so we're just caught in this, this delicate, gentle walking on eggshells dance.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We're going to get more into that, particularly in the healthcare system, because I'm curious about that too. But I'm also wondering, I mean, and again, we're going to talk about advocacy from the point of view of you creating diversibility. but what about your own journey personally with advocacy after the accident. Um, I mean, you were nine years old. We're going to sort of go back in time a little bit again here. You were a kid. You were obviously taken to the hospital to take care of these physical injuries and the emotional injuries were not addressed for years to come. But did your mom then take on a role as your healthcare advocate? after all of this happened and did that impact your relationship as well?
1: Mm. (sighs) So my mom is a hero
0: Mm.
1: and I can also be a nine-year-old, nine-year-old girl who was really angry at a parental figure who all she wanted to do was fix me Mm. and maybe even still. And I want to acknowledge that we can exist in those contradictions and in 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 that paradox, yeah, because what she needed to do was she needed to raise four kids on her own.
0: Mm.
1: What she needed to do was raise four kids on her own, but make sure that, that we got a quality education, had a consistent roof over our head, had food on the table. That also meant that she was just not present for. Mm emotional healing. In terms of being my advocate, I just felt like I was broken in her eyes Mm. and all I could do to make her feel better was to try and do everything I could to fix myself. And so that meant physical therapy. It meant doctor's appointments. It meant acupuncture. It meant taking a medical leave in university to see if I could get like a muscle and tendon transfer surgery, which didn't end up happening. Um, It just, it meant that a nine-year-old girl couldn't be a nine-year-old girl anymore Hmm. because I was thrust into environments that I had no say over and a narrative that I was perpetually broken and couldn't talk to anyone about it. Mm. So I, I'm not quite sure how to answer that question because I, I through this journey of starting disability, I have met other disability advocates who are now my friends who talk about what a supportive family environment they were in mm. and how they learned to love their disabilities because their parents were their advocates, and fought so tirelessly for them to get integrated education, to get the right access to care. Um, I, I can't say the same thing. Um, I will, I mean, my mom is very, she, I mean, she's not public about this, but she is very vocal about the fact that she's unsupportive of my disability work. Hmm. She doesn't understand why I or how I can make a living talking about childhood trauma. Right. Um, because what I am doing is I'm shedding a light on all of those things that cause shame to our family, right? I'm talking about the life journey of losing my par- of losing my dad. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the fact that I went through childhood trauma and that I'm experiencing, you know, mental health symptoms because of it. I'm talking about disability. These are all things like, so there's an old school of thought that is if any of these things happened in your family, it meant that something was wrong in your family back in your lineage and you were cursed. So that's why you don't want to tell anyone about them. Right. And now here I am, you know, like waving my flag. So, so I want to acknowledge those intricacies and delicacies as well. So. And that's also sort of a cross-cultural
0: experience as well, because that is that very individualistic, democratic American, you know, like I can wave my flag thing, um, which has been even more amplified by social media in many ways. Um, so it's interesting that like you're going from one side of the coin, one part of your identity, um, the this cultural, the Asian cultural influence of, not wanting to shed light on what is broken quote unquote broken if you will, versus the complete opposite, which is shedding the light on it
1: yeah, and I think this is why I often try to talk about intersectionality in my work mm. because interestingly enough I didn't even have this realization that my Asian cultural background discriminated uh, discriminated parts of my identity, right also being born a woman right and, right. and where that sit on the hierarchy and the thing is, you can meet two people who have very similar disability origin stories. And I've met a couple of people who lost a loved one in a car accident, um, experienced some level of paralysis, likely more severe than mine. And, um, but, but or, or the yes and the cultural mm-hmm. environment that they grew in allowed them to get the mental health support they need. The first time I went to therapy was 2017. That's yeah, 20 wow. years. Twenty years after the accident, and so in a way, diversibility was almost like my therapy. And then, then seven or eight years after I started diversibility, you know, um, two or one other thing I'll say is that, or two other things I'll say is I never saw what I had as a disability until two thousand nine.
0: Yeah. And until you I never, started communing with the disability community.
1: Yeah. Correct. And I never thought that what had happened, or I never labeled what had happened to me as trauma. I just called it a car accident. I didn't call it trauma until 2015. Wow. I met someone named Sarah Fader, who is the founder of an, a nonprofit called Stigma Fighters, which is all around um, removing the stigma around mental illness. But she called it trauma. And she was the first person who told me, hey, maybe you have PTSD related to the car accident. Those were never things, you know, those aren't even in like the vocabulary of an Asian family. <laughs> right. Yeah. But that's so important
0: to acknowledge. I'm wondering as well about your siblings. What like did, because they're like you, first generation, you know, growing up in this cross cultural influence, having also well, two others having been in the car accident with you, um, but all of them also experiencing the grief of losing your dad, mm-hmm. Are did they have similar experiences in terms of their understanding of the emotional and physical impact, the, the, disabil- the word disability? Have they also walked that fine line or has that been really your cross to bear because you also have this physical disability?
1: hmm mm-hmm. That is a great question. And I remember when diversity first started getting a little bit of press, I would often get the question around, around the other, my siblings who were also in the car, and then if my family was supportive. And what was interesting was because there was and hasn't been collective healing, this just felt like a very individual solo journey for me. That like I didn't even ask my family for permission to start diversity. I was just like, I need to do this, and so I'm not even sure where. I, I'll say two things: one about one of my brothers and who was in the my brother who's in the car, and then one about my sister. And about my sister, she she has been my biggest cheerleader, but I have never acknowledged it. Because what ended up happening was I I during my birth month, during April, I'll do a fundraiser for a nonprofit and I'll give shout-outs on social media to the people who've donated and I'll try to find a picture of me and that person. And my sister has donated like every single year. And so as I am going back, I remember like going back in the archives, like looking for a photo of us. And there were so many things that she posted on her Facebook that were like, check out my little sister, like being featured in the Ford Foundation. So proud of you. And what's interesting is because I think that I have like I think I feel a little bit of resistance because my family reminds me that I'm Asian or like how hard things were growing up, that I like never actually saw them for what she was doing, which is, it's incredible to have her as a cheerleader, right? And then there's my brother. And my brother, when I go home, tells me I'm a fraud and he doesn't understand why people like pay me to talk about this car accident. And he just thinks it's, I mean, he's kind of like in my mom's camp because he was also in the car, right? Right and his his work life looks very different than mine um and so i i am curious so i i just finished participating in something called a gratitude adventure it was led by a friend named Jessica Ensell and there are like four different types of gratitude so there's just like the normal gratitude, and then there are wins, like what are you celebrating? Then there's future gratitude, and then there are what she calls love waves. And at, as and each one she rolls out like every single week, so that you're building gratitude habits. And 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 I the reason why I'm talking about gratitude is that it's all tied into my wellness, right? And and my mental health. And so what's interesting about future gratitudes is that you envision something that you dream about in the future and you express gratitude for it as though it's already happened. And a lot of my future gratitudes are, and I'll say this on this podcast so that I can manifest it, is like, I love my relationship with my family. And I love the way that we have healed through this accident together. And I, um, and my mom is my biggest cheerleader. And it just feels so great to be a cohesive family unit together again.
0: Mm.
1: We're not there yet. But <laughs> okay.
0: but you're aware um, of taking responsibility or taking the responsibility that you can to create that healing in the family.
1: Yes. Yes. Mm. Um, but it needs to be. And this is this is the thing, because you asked, like, even going back to your question around, like, how do you invite that conversation? Mm. And the thing is, and I find this in my work and you probably find this in your work, too, is that to have a conversation, two people need to be willing so I have encountered people in my life who see disability as less than, who see disabled as broken, and they are unwilling to engage in a further conversation around that. Hmm. Those, that is not my sphere of influence. Those are not the people that I'm trying to influence. And I will acknowledge that my brother and my mom may be those people. Um, and so, or sorry, may or may not be those people who want to have that conversation around healing. And so, like, I I almost think that in the creation because when I talk about like creating diversity, I off in in the beginning I would talk about it like I am just here to facilitate conversations around a topic that a lot of us are a little bit uncomfortable around. And I wonder, and this is just me prophylalizing. <laughs> We're gonna pretend like I said that word very seamless. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but but I wonder if for me, I'm flexing this muscle because the root of all of it is I want to be able to navigate this conversation around healing with my family. Sure.
0: I I mean, that makes like absolute perfect sense from a psychological point of view. Yeah. But it's actually a really productive thing as well, you know? Um, But then it is, it does become the ball and chain that you're going to carry with you until that happens too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about
0: diversability. Let's talk about what inspired you to found the organization? What you've been accomplishing? Tell us everything.
1: <sighs> part two of the part. Podcast. Two. <laughs> <laughs> um, so So what's interesting because um, well, I guess I'll get into that later. So I started DiverseAbility when I was a senior in college, and I call myself an accidental advocate. I call myself an accidental community builder, an accidental entrepreneur, an accidental speaker. Because I had come back from my internship in investment banking at Goldman Sachs, hmm. and what happened? And I need to bring up this internship because what happened at the internship is that no one gave me an easy button for for life. That was a grueling environment. I was up until like two in the morning on some nights, and people just needed their pitch book on their desk in the morning, and. I had just felt prior to that point that everyone was tiptoeing around me like I was going to break, right? No one's asking me about the car accident, even though you're like, like, I see you staring at my arm. I don't know how to engage in that conversation. You don't know how to engage in that conversation. And we both go off with our own imaginary narratives of what we think happened to my arm, right? And I go around with my imaginary narrative of what I think you're thinking about happened to my arm. That's
0: super, yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> which which feels which feels amazing. Yeah. And everyone can being sarcastic.
0: We're definitely being sarcastic. That's that's the best way for yes. everyone to be.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I and I do and I want to name the sarcasm in case people are just like catching this in the middle. So that feels super awkward. It's just like so awkward. It's it doesn't feel great for anyone. And so I came back from this um I came back from this internship. And I was just feeling really curious because I was just in an environment where my colleagues all knew that I had a disability, but they didn't care. Um, And I want to use like care. It's not like the heavy care, like I care about you care, but it's like, please get your work done. Like we know you're disabled, but get your work done. And it was a little bit of tough love. That for me, and I talk about tough love a lot, because I feel like our external environment has taught us to set the bar so low that we end up not dreaming bigger and not feeling that we can be successful in the things that we want to do. And I just spoke on a panel with some disabled college students, and one of the college students asked a question. He said, he or she said, "What what if the things that I want to do, I can't? Like, or, or they were like, I have dreams for my career, but I just can't do them. And I was like, who told you that, you know, um, because if these are your dreams, you will figure it out how to get there. But anyway, so my dream was to be an investment banker, Mm. rewind back. And so I came back and I had this, I had experienced this tough love of people saying you can succeed in the, in this industry if you want to. Um, and my recruiter. That's sort of,
0: I just want to pause you there because that's also kind of unusual. If you're showing up with a disability, particularly one where there might be a visual signifier, that's kind of an unusual thing for people to be like, you can do everything that everyone else can do. Cause most of the time people see a disability or hear that someone has a disability and they're like, oh, so you're going to do less then. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so I also think there's that, that attitude of, I, what about the thing I want to do that I can't do actually comes from social pressure. It comes correct, from correct. the way that we're
1: socialized. Yes. Yeah. Um, who are forcing us to suppress our dreams. Like what a soul crushing mm. thing to even just sit in. But, yeah. but the real turning point was that my recruiter, her name was Jenny. She said to me, she said, Tiffany, I want you to know that you deserved your place here and you don't need to have a chip on your shoulder. So she legit called me out. (laughs) Yeah, wow. Uh, So anyway, so I went back to Georgetown, which is where I went for undergrad. And I was just really noodling on this fact Mm. that she called me out for playing small and Mm. not believing that I could succeed. She could see that I wasn't believing in myself. Mm. And I said, what would happen if, where I was just like, you know, working at Goldman was the first time I ever thought about what it was like to be a woman in a male dominated industry It made me think about what it was like to be a person of color in a very white-dominated industry, and I got access to disabled employees at the firm who started getting me thinking. I mean, this was really the first time I started thinking about intersectionality and identity, and when I went back to school, I had always seen disability through the medical model, so my disability is a diagnosis. And my mom has seen my disability through the medical model, which is, let's go to the doctor and find you some treatment. So I started wondering, what would it look like if I owned disability as part of my identity? Because I know I'm a woman when I show up in the world. I know I'm Asian when I show up in the world. And I know that I have a paralyzed arm when I show up in these spaces. So that was the beginnings of diversability, which is, can we start to have conversations around my daily experiences, so that you can understand what it is like to, so you can maybe have a little bit of empathy of what it's like to live in a disabled body. I wasn't even thinking about intersectionality at this point. And what ended up happening was that I started meeting other disabled people at Georgetown who looked to me and said, I met this woman and they were, they were underclassmen. And they were like, I met this senior who, was So proud and confident in her identity, and it made me start to wonder what it would be like if I talked about my narrative in a more empowering way. And honestly, I did all of this before I was ready. Um, so I remember the first time I told the story of the car accident. It was October twenty second, two thousand nine, which is uh, gross- almost—I mean, tomorrow oh. is your anniversary. Oh no, Pre- pretty be- much, couple days, of days. From now. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, October twenty second, and I cried and i have i have talked about this story but i cried for two reasons one because there was so much hurt and pain in that story that had been suppressed for 12 years right but at the same time this is what it felt like to be seen this is what it felt like to be seen in my story and have it validated for the first time because i was going around with a fake story or a, a or a non story that was letting you determine what my story was for me right that those awkward stares before. Yeah. And I guess what I want to say is that as diversability has gone on this journey, our product, our product is our community because people will often ask us like, okay, so like which advocacy issue are you tackling? Like, are you addressing like access to healthcare? You know, you talked about patient advocacy. Are you, um, are you tackling disability employment, design, universal design, And there's been research done. I think it was a Harvard study that showed that the key to your longevity and your well-being and your happiness and your success is rooted in having healthy relationships and your social connection. That, to me, is where the sweet spot is of what diversability is sitting in, in that in order for you to go into all those different advocacy areas You need to know that you have an army of people who are backing you up, who are cheering you on, who are elevating and amplifying you. Because if you don't have that, you're just one stick. You're one branch on a tree. But when you have a community, you're like the whole trunk and the roots. And Caroline Casey, who is the founder of The Valuable 500, talks about how much influence we have as a community. Like, when we come together around a campaign or around an advocacy issue, we can be unstoppable. We can be a generative magic force. And I don't want to discount the fact that some people's disabilities are can be debilitating. Sometimes, sometimes you don't like your disability. I mean, sometimes I don't like my disability, you know? That is what it means to be human, right? To say that we can only sit in spaces where we're the victim or to say that we can, like, only be happy, I mean, that's toxic positivity, that is... Another way that our community is dehumanized. So a big part of diversability as a community is how can we just acknowledge that we're human? How can we humanize, yeah, I yeah, humanize our experiences and have conversations with our non-disabled peers that are structured in a way that make us equal. You're not volunteering for me. Being my friend is not a social good, you know, which I know is like how a couple of other organizations have been structured. And, and that's but totally But I have disabled too. friends. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> that. You always hear that. I mean, you hear it about
0: race and gender more than anything, but like, it's the same thing when people are like, oh no, but I have a disabled friend. So I'm cool with disability.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's like one, I think this is why, this is why empathy exercises are a problem, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you acquire a disability, Like at the root of a disability experience is trauma and grief. And there are five or six stages of grief, depending on which piece of research you're looking at. And the last two stages of grief are acceptance and meaning. Mm -hmm. I would say I am probably in my meaning stage of my disability narrative. But in those first 12 years, I was in the loss and denial and when we do empathy exercises, you're only allowing non-disabled people to sit in those first couple of stages where things are really hard, which is why I think I I've tried to and what we try to do in diversibility is kind of course correct and show you, look at how empowered I feel in my disability narrative. Look at how proud I am. Look at how amazing my life is. Um, so in terms of what diversity has been up to these days, uh, through the end of the year, DiverseAbility is participating in the Facebook Community Accelerator, which is all about what does it look like to really invest in our community? Um, what does that look like from a programming perspective? Pre-COVID, diversibility was all about in-real-life interactions. I will name, there is a neuroscientist named Dr. Vivian Ming, and she says the best way to tackle any type of bias is through real-life continuous experiences with people who challenge your stereotypes. So I have not been as excited, because the thing is like media is very powerful, of course. You see that viral video that like comes across your feed, but do you actually know that person's name? Like other than the fact that they ran a marathon, like do you know if they're dating? Do you know, you know, what their favorite food is? Like media is powerful, but I think again, you only get like one part of the narrative and that's part of why it like feeds into inspiration porn, which I think is harmful because like, you don't actually even know that person. So that's why I was like all about in real life. I think like once people, once you've met me and you've gotten to know me, you can go around and say, I know Tiffany and I have a disabled friend, but you can say, let me tell you about all the things she told me about dating during a pandemic. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, let me tell you about this podcast that she's like interviewing, like that she's trying to be a, she's trying to be a better anti- anti-racist ally, like here's the work that she's doing. Mm -hmm. You know, here's the work that she's doing around collective healing in her family or better understanding what it means to be Asian, right? It's like, like, how can, how can you just like see, like when you meet a person, you are just not, you're not just fixated on like one part of their identity, like my paralyzed arm, right? Or your illness. You actually like talk about all sorts of things. You talk about Mm -hmm the weather and, and everything else. So inevitably we'll always get to the weather. (laughs) That's true. Well, especially here. So I'm, I'm, I'm joining you from San Francisco. The weather is, is top of mind and whether or not we have good air quality or the sky is orange, who knows? I know. Yeah. (laughs) And how's Carl today? (laughs) And how, how is Carl, you know, Carl, Carl in full force, but, Mm -hmm. um, I was all about in real life interactions. And so I do acknowledge that in this pandemic environment, What what does it look like for diversability to invest in continuing to connect, but connect along whatever the parameters we have now, which are our our virtual environment? And what I think, what I hope that diversability will allow people to do, and we recently, if you go into our website, we have a tab called like our community. And we recently went through this exercise of determining who our community personas were. So we have people within our community who are, like, super proud of their disability identities. A lot of them are already thought leaders in the disability space. Then you have people who are kind of, like, emerging. I would call this, like, circa 2009 Tiffany, which is, I don't really know what my story is. I still have a lot of internalized ableism. I'm not ready to be public yet, but, like, I really just want to feel, like, empowered and see what other people are doing and just, like, have a space I can go to for, for support. And then, of course, we have our non disabled, anti ableist allies who are. I wanna be better f- for you, Tiffany. I wanna be better for you, Lauren. I just wanna know what conversations you're having because that's how, like, just having that exposure is kind of this, like, diver- hashtag diversify your feed allows me to better understand because I don't know what the right questions are, right? And then we have things like TikTok. I mean, diversibility, we just started our TikTok channel, which I actually think if we get it to a good point, we can actually start to have some of these humanizing conversations featuring more of our community members. Absolutely.
0: And TikTok's a really cool platform for that because these quick bites that are educational, that give people a punchy, fun way of looking at things have been really effective. I mean, they're sort of like one of the leaders It started with the dance videos. Now I'm seeing so many more educational aspects of, of TikTok, which is really exciting.
1: Yeah, I I mean I think it's I love that we have given TikTok so much airtime in this conversation. Oh, I mean, they I, should sponsor this. <laughs> I mean, I I really am a TikTok evangelist because I you know, I so one of the questions that I got a lot was how do you get dressed? And I thought that that was kind of weird. But then I Googled it and I came across a ton of YouTube videos. And a lot of them were like six to 10 minutes showing how people got dressed with one hand. And this is relevant for like people who um, may have aphasia from a stroke um, may have cerebral palsy and only use one side of their body. And a lot of them are like linked to like occupational therapy and, and physical therapy. And so I recorded like a 15 second version of me getting dressed And all of the comments and the, and I got a ton of comments that were like, you don't understand how helpful this is. And it's interesting because something that I just learned, because I think what occupational therapists and physical therapists, they always want the real world examples, but when you are in PT or OT, you're probably not at the point yet where you're like feeling great about showing someone else how you get dressed and you don't want your OT or PT filming you to like put it on a YouTube video. So it's all these... uh, physical therapists and occupational therapists like stimulating what it would look like and then it's like oh now we have an actual example of someone who is modeling what it looks like to get dressed but but that's the kind of stuff i mean the interesting thing about tiktok for me is that i i automatically feel like a content creator even though my, and the thing is with YouTube, you kind of like, you put the fancy text in and it's six minutes and you've edited everything. With TikTok, I'm like, my video is 15 seconds and now I'm a content creator.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and you do it fast and you do it dirty. That's exactly what makes it so exciting and accessible to people too.
1: Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. I've learned a lot. I've learned how to make banana pancakes. I've learned (laughs) how to make banana chocolate spread. So there's a banana theme here. (laughs) There's a banana theme, yeah. Well, it's like, without... But then it like makes me excited to go to the grocery store. I mean, Mm -hmm. talk about like holistic, like for us as holistic humans, I've learned how to roll a towel like they do at the spa. Like,
0: (laughs) yeah, that's nice. I like
1: that. But there are ways to like upgrade the basic elements
0: of your life, like things like folding your towels, which like once you elevate that and someone teaches you how to do it, you can feel like you're treating yourself a bit more, especially when we're all stuck at home more. 100%.
1: And the reason why I want to bring this up is like, like. I think for some reason we are caught in a narrative that like as a disabled person all I'm doing all day is like watching disability documentaries and like following disability thought leaders and listening to disability podcasts and like disability, like disability blah, 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 you know, and I don't mean blah, blah, blah to to, like invalidate how important it is to be. I mean, I feel, I feel like I'm like, I feel like I'm very nourished in terms of how much disability content I get. And that's why I turned to TikTok because I'm like, ooh, let me try out a new recipe or let me learn how to do something different. And this is how you like up-level your life, right? Because it's like my disability muscle just like feels really strong right now, but my cooking muscle is like not great at all.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You look for the things that you want to strengthen yourself. Yeah, yeah. One of the ways I like to wrap up my interviews with people, because we have talked about so much today, and I'm excited for everyone who's tuning in to check out Diversibility to, to get involved in the community, to, to really examine how we see ourselves, as well as how we are projecting out into the world our various forms of identity. And I'm wondering if you have some tips for those who are tuning in. For anyone who, I mean, maybe they have a disability, maybe they're waiting to be diagnosed. Maybe they are an ally and wanting to be a better ally. What are your top three tips for people who are in this disability, chronic illness world alongside you and I?
1: Mm-hmm. I will give you my top three life tips. Love um, it. Number one is that you cannot delegate self-care. And this is a piece of advice I have gotten from a mentor of mine because I spent, and if you are in advocacy work, and it's almost like if you are disabled and listening to this, and I'm including chronic illness and mental health conditions in this category because they are, they are disabilities, if that's how you want to label them. Um, The reason why I bring this up is because like your existence is advocacy, And so even just by existing, there's like a little bit of exhaustion there. And there are a couple, there are a couple terms like compassion fatigue or like activism burnout. And so creating these non-negotiable containers of what self-care looks like for you. So TikTok for me is self-care, you know, talking about banana pancakes. It's a place I go to where I'm just like, I just want to like lip sync to this video. Yeah. Or sing to this Disney karaoke song. So. (laughs) Figure out how, and and self-care, you know, one of the things that I've learned during this pandemic is that there's kind of like, there's a self-care practice and then there's a self-care industry. And the industry has kind of like co-opted the practice to say, you need to buy this (laughs) thing and you need to buy this vacation because that's the only time you're going to get self-care. And this is something that I'm learning too. I mean, this is, this is more like life tips for myself is, things that super nourish me. Like I want to immerse myself in nature as much as possible. I recently just discovered a hike that's only a 20 minute drive outside of where I am. And I'm like in a forest, like 20 minutes outside of downtown San Francisco. I'm in a forest. Mm -hmm. So figure out what those things, I mean, it's journaling or, you know, um, as part of my gratitude adventure, we did these power dances. And so I just had so much fun, like coming up with what my power song was going to (laughs) be. And I recorded I recorded a couple different versions of my power dance because I wasn't sure like which one I felt comfortable posting Mm -hmm. and none of them I felt comfortable posting, but I posted one anyway, you know? And, and that's like the fun part is like, which I guess comes to like tip number two, which is as hard as things are, I have found that you can still root yourself in what I call PFJ in spaces of play, fun, and joy. So my advocacy work is very serious. That childhood car accident I was in was very traumatic, but how can I channel as much play, fun, and joy into my life and like laugh at the ridiculousness of what it's like to be pandemic dating right now, you know, like, like, and just like giggle. Sometimes I just like giggle to myself of like the fact that I spend my life talking about my life. You know, I spend my life and my work, like talking about my life and the fact that people get education, people like find new learnings or mirrors or reflections of of themselves in that. Hmm. And then the third thing I'll say, the third life tip. So the first was you can't delegate your self-care. Self-care is non-negotiable. The second is, which I guess is also tied to self-care is making spaces for play, fun and joy and to just like have, have fun with it all. Hmm. Um, the third will be that you matter mm. um, and your story matters. And when I think about what my life mission statement, is, so, so not abilities mission, but like Tiffany's mission, I want to give, I want to lead by example to give you permission to be unapologetically yourself because it is so liberating. And I see the difference between like nine-year-old adolescent Tiffany versus, like, Tiffany in her 30s, to just, like, let it all out. Um, I was recently on a podcast, on a different podcast, where (laughs) the host asked me if I had tips for listeners around dating someone with a disability. Mm. And that question caught me so off guard because, right, I'm not here to give prescriptive advice, sweeping (laughs) generalizations of what it's like to date a disabled person, what I just appreciated that that I could just be open about where I was and what I shared with him was that back in the day when I was dating, I would wait until like a couple dates in to tell someone about the car accident. Mm. But the thing is, if my car accident and my disability is my blanket, I want you. I want you to see it. Mm. Um, and how can I be? How can I be okay? Yeah. It's like, how can I put confidence in what I'm putting out there and not put too much weight or expectation on the outcome Mm. or what the response is going to be. And this is how I try to live my life because that is super liberating. So like right now I'm dating this guy and he loves like, um, he like loves sending me links of like things that he's learning or things that he's reading. And I just messaged him and I said, Hey, I just want to let you know that like sending me all these links is actually like kind of overwhelming for me because I don't like looking, at links on my, um, on my, on my phone. And I think past Tiffany would have been like, I'm just not going to say anything, you right. know, because like, I want this guy to like me. And he responded, he's like, thank you for letting me know your boundaries. But anyway, I also like, I was going to say
0: boundaries. I yeah. love it. Healthy
1: boundaries. Yeah. But I also like this guy and we get along because we know that like the, the, the key to success is just by over communicating, right? It's kind of like right. that, that, that awkwardness that I mentioned to you before of like, That guy has his narrative and I have my narrative and we're both going around with our own realities that like, we're not, we're not meeting each other. But, but yeah, that was a long winded way of saying the best gift that you can give the world is just by being yourself.
0: I love that. Can you remind everyone where they can find you and where they can find diversability?
1: Yes. So you can find me at I'm Tiffany U. It's two letters at the beginning, the letter I, the letter M, Tiffany U, my first and last name, and then Diversibility. Is at Diversibility across social channels, and you're welcome to join our Facebook community as well. It's bit.ly forward slash Diversibility Community, or you can just search Diversibility Community, or maybe it will be linked in the show notes. It will be. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, Absolutely, that's that's amazing. Do you have a quick ask for listeners today to what they can do
1: to support you and your community and the work that you're doing as I release you into your day? Sure. I get this question a lot, and I'm thinking of creating a one pager about it. Four Mm -hmm. ways to be an ally. Number one is learn disability history. I would highly recommend watching Crip Camp on Mm -hmm. Netflix. It's also streaming for free on YouTube. So hashtag no excuses. Number two Mm -hmm. is hashtag diversify your feed. So even if it's not diversibility, even if it's not me, just follow disabled content creators because we need to like muck up the algorithm to like start showing everyone more disability content. Yes. Number three, join the diversity community to continue the conversation. If you want to be a better non-disabled ally or if you are disabled and looking for support, we're here for you. We're here to amplify you. And then the fourth one is if you are in a position to hire, please hire disabled people. Yes. Tiffany, you, thank you so
0: much for being on the show today. You have been an absolute joy and I can't wait to talk more.
1: For sure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at Uninvisible Pod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.